Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Jim Garrity is off today doing work. He will be back tomorrow. Uh, Joining us instead of Jim today, Emily Jashinsky. It would be almost easier to tell you the jobs Emily doesn't have than to go through the list of the ones that she does, but uh, she is the culture editor at The Federalist. She's the host of The Federalist Radio Hour. She's the director of the National Journalism Center. Uh, She's the host of Rising Fridays at the Hill and a senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. So, Emily, uh, how do you do all this and sleep? I don't understand. Yeah, uh, not not too much sleep. Uh, so just light on the sleep and then heavy on the work, and that's the recipe for success. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. All right. Well, uh, let's get to our good, bad, and crazy martinis, starting with uh, the good. We've been talking about the leak and the Dobbs draft from Sam Alito. We assume the court uh, is still in that uh, at least five votes uh, in favor of repealing Roe at this point. We probably would have heard otherwise if if not. Uh, And the way the left is pulling their hair out, it would certainly indicate that that is the case. But this is the first time we've had a birthing person on the podcast this week to talk about it, Emily. So uh, that's that's always exciting. Uh, But the good martini is actually this thread from John McCormick over at National Review Online, who not only points out just how extreme the legislation the Democrats want to pass through Congress to codify Roe v. Wade as federal law and take it out of the hands of the Supreme Court, including, of course, abortion through all nine months and and all sorts of other things. But it also points out uh, that Susan Collins, not only is she highly unlikely to uh, support removing the filibuster for this legislation, I don't even think she's for it, even though she seems to be pretty upset with what the court's about to do. Uh, she doesn't see any sort of uh, religious liberty exemptions here in terms of uh, providers uh, and, and whether or not you would have to perform an abortion. Uh, she also has a big problem because it doesn't prohibit sex-based abortions or require parental or guardian notification for minors seeking an abortion, which are obviously pretty popular provisions. So what do you make of, first of all, the exposing of how radical this bill is, but the idea that Susan Collins is not about to do what uh, the Twitter left wants her to do and kill the filibuster here? Yeah, she absolutely is not. And we've seen that she's not uh, particularly swayed by the pressures of re-election threats. She was also just re-elected. So this is something that would, you know, she would, she would have to deal with years later. And she, as much as anyone knows how short political memories are. Um, but it, the in political Playbook this morning, they had a really interesting report. They got some talking points from the National Republican Senatorial Committee um, that they sent to Republicans, basically helping them, helping guide them through this conversation about a post-row America. And in the Politico report, it's funny. It said Republicans are kind of counting on Democrats overplaying their hands. And the fact that this legislation exists, period, is already Democrats overplaying their hands manifest. There have been, you know, a a lot of sort of parsing of, of polls in recent years, but just over the past few days that show a lot of Americans actually don't understand how far Roe itself goes in leaving this up to the states um, and and how you know radical uh, state abortion laws can be because of Roe. And so I think the more that Democrats sort of try to fill this this uh, void that Roe will 
leave with their own plans, I actually think they're returning some of the momentum and, and some of the power in the argument back to Republicans, even in a country where the majority of people, when polled, do not support overturning Roe. Uh, Democrats are so radical on abortion. It has become so fundamental to their worldview and to their base um, that they really can't help but overstep on the issue. And I think we're going to see that play out um, over the next several months and over this election cycle. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating because who's really the radical here? The ones who want to uh, limit uh, abortion to before uh, the babies can feel pain or the people like Ralph Northam or legislation over in California uh, suggesting even if they survive an attempted abortion outside of the mother, we got to have a conversation about this. And if the California legislation is interpreted by some as, as being accurate, uh, you know, deaths by neglect after a failed abortion would not be prosecuted. That would be protected. And so uh, the more this these details get out, I think you're right. I think that uh, folks will see which side's really the radical one here. Ralph Northam and uh, Andrew Cuomo, by the way, are both considered moderates in their party. <laughs> so if you really, I was at Netroots Nation a few years ago uh, reporting for the Washington Examiner, and they were proudly sort of shouting their abortions um, as that you know language goes, as the new saying on the left goes. And uh, it, the more you know, people have their cameras down at the Supreme Court like we did a couple of, of nights ago, I, I think the more the, the public sees that, the less appealing the opposition to uh, overturning Roe actually looks. Emily, have they, has the left always been like this and they were just better at hiding it or have they really, really lurched far left in a short period of time here? Yeah, Joe Biden was the the youngest senator, uh, elected the youngest senator shortly after Roe was decided and was firmly against Roe. Um, and you know, he, he was very, had, had a, he's talked about abortion in very different terms um, back then. And so, well, I think, you know, each side has always had their base and radicals in their base. The, the sort of center of the Democratic Party has drifted um, to, to be aligned with the radicals of their base on the abortion issue. Um, and I think Roe actually induced a lot of that shift. Uh, shift. So no, they haven't always been like this. Um, you know, you, you had the safe, legal and rare language, very popular on the left for a long, long time. And now I was just reading an op-ed the other day that was lamenting the fact that Democrats still uh, use the safe, legal and rare uh, language on the left. And in fact, they don't, they really, really don't. So you, you very much hear that infrequently. Emily, let's uh, look at uh, a potential problem for the right on this, because I think you're right. The Democrats are probably likely to overplay their hand, especially if recent polling from Fox News is accurate, that actually a majority of Americans think that in most or all cases, abortion ought to be uh, illegal. Uh, But you wrote for The Federalist uh, today about the barstool conservatives. And essentially, this is uh, you know part of the, the big Trump coalition, the people who didn't usually vote Republican, but they did because of Donald Trump. And they, they got to voting on the right for reasons other than social issues. And so you specifically point out Dave Portnoy saying, if you know this is going to be the linchpin issue of the election, I, I got to trend Democrat. Uh, and there are other certain factions of certainly that have joined this coalition over the past several years that uh, didn't do so because the GOP agreed with them on, on social issues. So uh, if this does become a dominant issue, and the Democrats will certainly try to make it that way, how badly could it splinter uh, this coalition? Or does the overall government overreach, whether it's on COVID restrictions, whether it's on disinformation governance boards and all sorts of other things, inflation, whatever the other issues are this year, supersede that in the end? Yeah, it's such a good question because uh, the way voters prioritize different issues, uh, abortion is not usually 
uh, at the top for most voters. They aren't they don't usually say they're going to vote for a Democrat or a Republican because of their stance specifically on abortion. Usually when you poll, it's down towards the end of the list in terms of people's priorities. That said, if Republicans uh, spend the next several months in this election cycle defending their opposition to abortion um, and defending the overturning of Roe, it kind of, for those barstool voters, as Matthew Walther sort of coined the term in an essay in the week in 2021, for those barstool voters, it is going to, you know, take that sort of Trumpian facade off of the modern Republican Party, and it'll just sort of confirm their stereotypes from the 2012 war on women narrative that Republicans are just all religious freaks in their minds uh, because they've grown up in this, this Roe culture and the sort of uh, sexual libertine culture. So I, I do think it can be powerful in, uh, you know, taking se- for some of those voters, seeing the Republican Party as as how they saw it before Trump and not sort of wanting to associate with the, the religious freaks as somebody like Portnoy might see it. Uh, so even if it's not on the top of a mind for a lot of voters, um, I, I, can, I can see it sort of becoming a thing that makes it once again very uncool to associate with the Republican Party in the way it was before Trump. Um, so I don't know what effect it'll have, but I do think it's fair that that coalition ha- has to say it's always been very fragile to begin with. Yeah, it's interesting how long a coalition could stick around once the person that put the coalition together uh, isn't necessarily on the ballot. But he might be in 2024. We don't know that yet. So uh, we'll find out. But uh, in the meantime, a lot to take in and uh, a a lot of long days, as Emily mentioned at the beginning with all the different uh, professional hats that she wears. Uh, You want to be comfortable while you do that. And to do that, you can do no better than being in your X chair. Now, Jim is not here today. And Jim is the one who got to try out the X chair, and he still has the X chair in his office. I've tried it out once at his house, and I got to tell you, uh, I'm pretty jealous that he got to actually try that product out. But uh, no one can actually tell you how good the product is like Jim. So here's how he puts it. From the first moment I sat in my X chair, my body immediately said, ah, now this is what a real office chair is supposed to feel like. I never actually looked forward to sitting in my office until I got my X chair. Now, can your current office chair give you a massage while you're working? My X chair can do that. Can your current office chair heat up or cool down? My X chair can do that too. It's all in the LMAX massage and temperature regulation, which is exclusively designed and made for X chair. And once you feel the customized support of the X chair's patented dynamic varial lumbar or DVL, you'll never be happy in any other chair again. High performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort. These are all the reasons I love my X chair. Now I can't wait to be at work. And sometimes even if I'm not working, I just sit in my X chair just to get that feeling. Take my advice. Try the X chair for yourself risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair should be, you'll never go back. I promise. Go to xchairmartini.com now. That's the letter X chair, M-A-R-T-I-N-I.com or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 per month. One more time, xchairmartini.com. All right, Emily, on to our bad martini now. And if there's anything that we know about Washington, and there are lots of things we know about Washington, it's that people have a really hard time keeping their mouth shut, especially when they should. And that includes people in the national security community. The New York Times is quoting people, unnamed, of course, about how the U.S. is uh, targeting Russian generals. 
this couldn't possibly go bad. Uh, the Times says the United States has provided intelligence about Russian units that has allowed Ukrainians to target and kill many of the Russian generals who have died in action in the Ukraine war, according to senior American officials. Aren't they always the ones? Ukrainian officials said they have killed approximately 12 generals on the front lines, a number that has astonished military analysts. The targeting help is part of a classified effort, well, not anymore, by the Biden administration to provide real-time battlefield intelligence to Ukraine. That intelligence also includes anticipated Russian troop movements gleaned from recent American assessments of Moscow's secret battle plan for the fighting in the Donbas region of eastern Ukraine. Officials declined to specify how many generals had been killed as a result of U.S. assistance. The U.S. has focused on providing the location and other details about the Russians' military uh, mobile headquarters, which relocate frequently. So, uh, Emily, you know, there's the saying back in World War II that loose lips sink ships. Uh, I don't know what these people think they're accomplishing by telling the world that they're doing this. I mean, I'm not surprised that we're doing it, but by admitting it, it can cause a whole lot of problems. Yeah. And that's what's interesting here, um, whether this was a leak or whether this was uh, sort of past someone, you know, actually caught the story at the Times um, is one question, but they're you know, confirming the story here. And what that suggests to me is the Biden administration or the, the it might be a sort of matter of, of actually bragging of about saying, you know, part of, as part of their strategy that, you know, this is this reporter is going to show up in The New York Times uh, that this is what we're doing and what that marks is an escalation uh, period. And so whether it's a good escalation um, as the, the Biden administration seems to think it would be, given the fact that it's confirmed or a bad escalation, um, you know, how this is interpreted by Russia, we're just sort of on this slow march to a, a dangerous escalation. Um, and we don't know what's going to push uh, us over that threshold. So there's just, you know, a lot of need to play this very carefully and confirming a report like this with senior sources, un senior unnamed sources, doesn't give me a whole lot of confidence um, that they're taking that as seriously as, as perhaps they should be. No, I think you're exactly right about that. As, as a member of the media, you like the fact that you can get uh, people to talk. But there's also the national security considerations here, uh, like you said. And as Jim has pointed out many times on the podcast, we want Ukraine to do well. But we also have to be concerned about what Putin might do uh, if he's continually frustrated and eventually desperate to make the progress he thought was going to be so so easy to do. So Washington's always been bad at keeping uh, mouth shut, but uh, especially in situations like this, it's important. And uh, once again, we apparently have people who just can't do that. No, I mean, you're, you're right. Like in the media, it's wonderful when things leak as a reporter, as a journalist, because you want to be, you, you want to hold the administration towards transparency. But on the side of the administration, um, you know, you, you do have a duty to uh, retain confidential information um, and, and not leak it. But I think this was probably strategic. Um, and I'm not sure it's a smart strategy. <laughs> Get into that just a little bit more. Uh, what's what, Why would they want the public to know this? Or and, and eventually the Russians, obviously, because they probably already knew it, but now it's official. Yeah, I think that's it. I, I think they it's probably particularly for the Russians um, to to see that our very high level intelligence is being used. That number of generals is stunning. Um, that 12 number of generals is, is very, very high. Those are obviously high value targets in the sort of parlance of war. And uh, to brag about that in the New York Times, I think it is really directed at the Russians in particular to say the level of uh, opposition you're getting from the United States is 
now sharing high-level intelligence that is uh, devastating uh, the the leadership of Russian forces. Um, and and to say like, listen, we are involved to this degree. Um, and, and so obviously, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes, and you know, none of us really do because this is now public. But uh, this seems like it, it really does seem like an escalation um, in in sort of getting. Russia to turn up the heat and their invasion and their assaults on Ukraine. Um, and, and I don't know that that'll be constructive. My gut reaction to this, Emily, is, man, I hope they know what they're doing. But if you look at any other issue this administration has focused on, that doesn't give me a lot of confidence that they actually know what they're doing from economy to, right, Afghanistan. to everything else. Yeah, Afghanistan, uh, fill in the blank, uh, just about every issue. And the American people see that. You look at the polls. I'm not sure Biden is uh, above 40 percent on any particular issue. But uh that makes me even more nervous about what could happen here. But uh, in the meantime, uh, don't forget about the phenomenal deals you can get over at MyPillow. And right now they've got their buy one, get one extravaganza, really high quality products that I love. You got the sheets, the towels, uh, the pillows themselves, of course. And now you can buy one, get one free. My pillow bed sheets as low as fifty nine ninety eight. The my pillows as low as forty nine ninety eight. Uh, and the roll and go anywhere my pillows is just $29.98, buy one, get one free. And uh, the new product here that we're highlighting this week is the Roll and Go Anywhere My Pillow. You can use it on your couch. You can use it in your recliner. You can use it in your car. So as you can tell from that, it's versatile enough to take just about anywhere, whether you're on vacation or you're in the car. It's available in multiple colors and patterns. It's also, and this is important, machine washable and dryable, especially for those of you with kids. And it comes with a 10-year warranty and 60-day money-back guarantee. Sounds like a great deal. Yeah, it does. And if you've ever taken a pillow in the car, you know you're going to need to wash it when you're done with that on a, on a trip. Uh, it's buy one, get one extravaganza at mypillow.com slash martini. Bed sheets and my pillows are just the tip of the iceberg. Find the full list of BOGO offers by visiting mypillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104. Stock up with buy one, get one free savings today and get Mike's book free with any purchase. Mypillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104. One more time, mypillow.com slash martini. All right, on to the crazy martini now, Emily. And uh, while most of the media is kind of focused on one big issue at a time, or maybe one or two right now, it's Roe v. Wade, Ukraine war. Uh, who knows what else uh, will pop up when the media gets bored with the issue that's uh, currently uh, on the front page. But one that uh, we're constantly seeing the drumbeat on is the green agenda. And no matter what's going on, whether it's uh, super high gas prices or the cost of food at the grocery store or whatever, the issue is this is a great opportunity. Never let a crisis go to waste. And so the Biden administration is trying to make that happen. Some of it they want to do through legislation. That plan isn't working out too well. But they also are going to go through the regulatory path. Uh, Gina McCarthy used to run the EPA for Barack Obama. She's now a uh, climate advisor to Joe Biden. And uh, she gave a speech uh, at Tufts University. And in this excerpt, you'll see that uh, they have very big plans for your kitchen and for the airlines. We have solutions that can deliver. We're, gonna, we're actually going to do 100 rules this year alone on appliances, just like you asked. We are developing partnerships on how we work together for new building standards, even for sustainable airlines. Who'd have thunk that they'd be all in, but they better be or they're going to be out of here. 
Uh, so there you go, Emily. Uh, I mean, they have made little secret about their ambition on the green agenda. They think that by uh, forcing prices higher and making things more scarce that we're used to, like fossil fuels and so forth, that we're going to like that. I'm not sure that that's going to be the result of this, but they keep pushing forward anyway. So what do you make of McCarthy and this constant drumbeat uh, to get off of fossil fuels and towards the left's green agenda? It's so absurd. And I think we take for granted sometimes uh, because we're so conditioned to expect this from the regulatory state. But the idea that these regulations are just being passed down by unelected bureaucrats um, is insane. I mean, it, it is truly insane how sweeping these types of regulations are, how they affect businesses that are already actually in the literal business of making products efficient for their customers. And by the way, it's the same thing. We, we hear this over and over again. Bitcoin's better for the environment. Teslas are better for the environment. Well, you're also mining <laughs> all kinds of different minerals. You have to use electricity to mine Bitcoin. There are always environmental costs. In some, in some cases, they're actually higher. Um, and so to just sort of act as though this is going to be dramatic, this is going to be what pushes us over the edge and the fight against climate change, that consumers need to make these sacrifices and quality businesses need to make these sacrifices um, as the government tells them to, rather than sort of adjusting to the market, which by the way, the government already says some of these companies are doing, uh, to, to sort of just pass these regulations down from Washington. It, it's absurd. It is completely absurd. It's not really, it's really honestly not good for anybody. Oh, absolutely right. And just more burden on business right now. Of course, the left doesn't care about uh, how many burdens that the businesses have on them. But uh, if you want to grow the economy, you want to increase productivity, uh, this is not going to help. I don't know what your basic philosophy is on the climate debate, uh, Emily. Mine boils down to, to three points. Number one, uh, the projections always seem to be wrong. Uh, the alarmist uh, projections never seem to happen, certainly in the time frame that they say. Um, then the question is whether their proposed solutions would actually work. And they seem to be kind of nebulous about that. And then the third question is, well, what do we have to do to get to your solutions? And that seems to be giving up a lot of things uh, in terms of freedom and uh, a lot of costs going up. So I'm not sure where the upside is here. Well, yeah. And, and what we have to do to get to their end goal is suddenly have massive cooperation with a abusive human rights state like China. Um, we have to sort of bring India in the fold and cut their em emissions dramatically, significantly in ways that are almost inconceivable. Um, and the same goes for China. And so they're asking American consumers and American businesses to make these sacrifices um, for less efficient products that cost more money and of uh, being subservient to the government's demands on the business side. Um, when in fact, we actually have very little reason to believe that in the long game, these sacrifices um, are, are actually going to be part of a real serious global effort that could actually cut the emissions they want to cut, the level of emissions they want to cut to that scale. If you're going to sacrifice, you would like to see some accomplishment. And uh, that doesn't seem to be on the horizon either. So, uh, Emily, uh, great to have you with us today. Thanks for filling in for uh, Jim. And uh, we'll talk to you down the road. Thanks so much, Greg. Emily Jashinsky, culture editor over at The Federalist. She's also the host of The Federalist Radio Hour, also the host of Rising Fridays at The Hill, director of the National Journalism Center, senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. Uh, do subscribe to the uh, Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already. Tell your friends about us as well. Thank you so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. They're a huge help to us. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. 
Follow all of us on Twitter. Emily is at Emily Jashinsky. Jim is at Jim Garrity. And I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Thursday. And please join us on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hi, everyone. Steve Hilton here. You may have seen my show, The Next Revolution, on Fox News. But did you know about my podcast, The Daily California? I live in California and I suffer, along with millions of people, the consequences of the madness, the left-wing madness that is shoved down our throats by the Democrats who've been in power, unchallenged pretty much for so long here. We're fighting back. It's called The Daily California. It's important that we get as many people joining us as possible because, as you know, what starts in California doesn't end there. It can infect the whole country. So join us at The Daily California to help fight back. Apple, Spotify, YouTube, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcasts.